Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Listeners should refer to the disclaimer in the episode notes and at the end of this podcast. Costco, one of the largest retailers in the world... In particular, you know, about 25% of their sales come from their private label. They have a very narrow number of SKUs compared to a typical supermarket. And they can offer those goods cheaper than anyone else can. And that, for them, their scale gives them a competitive advantage in a different way. G'day and welcome back to Equity ASA, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. I'm Phil Muscatello. My guest today is Vahari Ross, a portfolio manager, head of the Core Series Funds and head of research at Magellan. Hello, Vahari. How are you? Hi, Phil. Nice to be here. Vahari has 20 years experience in investment and joined Magellan in 2007. Prior to her appointment to head of research, she was head of the franchises team and retains responsibility for research coverage of franchises' stocks. And before that, Vahari was a senior analyst on the financials team. But even before that, you were in the actuarial space. Tell us about that. Do you like numbers really that much? Uh. Funnily enough, Phil, I always considered myself both a numbers and a creative person, and it was sort of a bit of an unexpected choice for me to to go into actuarial, but numbers just are there to represent something else, you know, tangible and qualitative that's going on. So I sort of don't really see it as either or. Maybe that's because I'm a left brain and a right brain person, but um, doing actuarial gave me, you know, certainly in the investing field gave me those building blocks of how to think about probabilities, how to think about distribution curves and how to do financial modeling really well. And that stuff ultimately, you know, does translate to, you know, a lot of fields, not just investing, obviously, but the foundation stones of of actuarial have been, you know, really valuable, even though I never actually worked as an actuary. When I was researching, you seem to be very quantitative, but you do look at the qualitative side of things. And I'll just preface this by saying I just saw on Twitter the other day, someone called qualitative fairly and uh, quantitative numbery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Look, I think, um, you know, actuarial itself, absolutely very quantitative. But, you know, and maybe that's, you know, with the, the benefit of experience over time now, Quantitative and qualitative are just two sides of the same coin. You've you've got to you know use the numbers to express a view, certainly in investing, and in in our case, you're representing a qualitative view through the financial model that you build, and ultimately you know predict the future of, of that company and therefore what it's worth. So, yeah, I see it as the same thing. And like I said, having that backbone, you know, that background rather, has been really valuable. As head of research. What are the kind of numbers that you find important in stock selection? 
That's the thing. I think there's two sides of this. One is uh, what is the share price? You know, that's that's a, the most important number because that's the that's the price that market's offering you to you know buy a potential future revenue and earning stream. And then on the other hand is the valuation. So what are the numbers that you need to work out what you think this business is going to be worth? Obviously, you know you want to model the revenues, you want to model the the profits, you want to model um, the cash flow generation capability of the company and you know all of those things come together obviously there's a there's lots of different ways to value a, a company but you know we talked we like to take a, a long-term approach and the thing that I think is really important maybe my actuarial background helps with this is when you put all of those numbers into a financial model and it spits out the stock is worth this price you've got to realize that that's just one of many potential outcomes there's a distribution curve around that because here we are we are predicting the future and having some consciousness of what the shape of that curve might look like I think becomes really important so where can I be wrong on the revenue front is there going to be a recession are operating margins sustainable why is the cash flow generation of this company better than you know its competitors some companies are lucky to have negative working capital which means that they you know, get the money for the goods that they're selling before they have to pay the suppliers, which is sort of, you know, a lovely place to be for cash flow generation. So all of those numbers matter, but I think being conscious of firstly where you can be wrong and what that shape of the numbers could alternatively be, maybe with the same probability, is just as important as well. I was really interested to hear about the distribution curve because I saw you talking about it somewhere else when I was you know, checking out what we should talk about. Yeah. So the distribution curve presumably is the range of possible future outcomes. Is that is that? Yeah, the case? I think that's accepting the fact that, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, you know, you're, <laughs> and, you know, if only we did, but can you imagine my investing success <laughs> if I did have one, but the reality is we are predicting the future. Therefore, you know, one scenario might be really likely to happen and that's your maybe that's your base case you know maybe that's 60 percent likely or 70 percent likely i don't really like putting numbers on it uh because even that's a guess how probable something is is also a guess but i like to think about it in terms of the shape of the curve and that is you know if you really don't know what's going to happen for a company then the, the shape of the curve is a straight line which is you know a good good case is probable a bad case is probable the middle of the road case is probable is just as probable on the other end, you've got a really skinny distribution curve, which is, you know, it's really, really predictable company. And, you know, that's obviously a, a nice place to invest because you can get a lot of conviction. You know, a straight line distribution curve is, you know, you really shouldn't invest because you just don't have no idea what, what's going to happen in this company. The other thing to think about there is that if there is a, a tail risk, if there's, you know, again, to use actuarial terms, if there's a big skew to one end of the distribution where there's a really, you know, worst case scenario uh, that could blow you up as an investor and does that make the distribution curve you know maybe it's kind of skinny but it's got this big fat tail to it which you don't want to expose yourself to um, as an investor or maybe there's a nice little upside option that's sitting there that's really probable as well so I think having a sense of what that shape looks like just it helps you determine how much conviction and how much you should back yourself on that investment. So what are your thoughts on company valuations in a time of rising interest rates? Uh, so that's a, obviously an interesting one. It's been a, a volatile time. That's the most <laughs> that overused would, word. That would, fix, uh, that would affect that curve, presumably. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it definitely affects what a business is worth. Sometimes it can affect 
real world outcomes, as, as we are seeing right now, you know, inflation's not necessarily a transitory thing anymore. And that's something that, like I said, the volatile markets have come to appreciate now this year. You know, the biggest thing we saw initially when inflation fears first came to the table was, okay, this means rates are going higher. Uh, The Fed's behind, so they're trying to catch up. They could take rates up fast. What that means in the first instance is companies that have a lot of growth and therefore they have more cash flows happening 5, 10, 20 years from now than a company that doesn't have that growth are worth less because just from a simple, you know, discounted cash flow mathematical formula point of view. So those initially all sold off. It was interesting that meanwhile you've got companies that are traditionally, you know, the staples of the of the market, not as affected by economic circumstances, were affected in a real world sense of facing very dramatic increases in their in their costs, you know, from transport, logistics, commodities, um, and not necessarily being able to pass that through the retailer channel necessarily either. So you're dealing with a margin compression going on in the short term as well. And that's a real world implication for those companies that otherwise you would say wouldn't be all that affected. So what we're seeing now, though, is maybe a bit of a shift. You know, you're starting to see some data come through that maybe suggests that that growth in the, that cost of goods sold basket has stopped. You know, maybe we're at peak inflation Maybe we aren't, but, you know, distribution curve and all that. But if we are there, you know, Nestle started talking about it in its second quarter, you know, that growth is has now, it's not, we're still at this really elevated level, but it's not continuing to grow. They're starting to take prices through. But now they're having to increase wages and lots of companies are having to increase wages. Um, you're also starting to see companies, uh, particularly in the tech space, start laying off and you've got the a lower demographic of consumers starting to hit a wall as well. So it's there's lots of moving parts going on and there's a real risk that yes the consumer hits a wall and there's nothing to, you know, dampen inflation and demand like a like a recession <laughs> and it might sort of solve the problem. So I was trying not to mention the R um, today but <laughs> and you know it's it's again it's one of the potential future mm. things that may happen and and it's you know it's difficult to assign a probability to that. It's better to acknowledge that we can't predict that necessarily right now. Uh, all we can do is invest such that we take those things into account. That means investing in companies that have pricing power, investing in companies that have reliable demand for their goods and services, and you know, not in you know in the losers in, in that scenario, the companies that can't pass through prices that are just going to be squeezed by very powerful people in their supply chain on either end, or are, you know are vulnerable to um, shocks because of that lower demographic consumer hitting a wall. So those are the things you can you know like I said take into account and you know uh, incorporate into your portfolio construction. So we're particularly focusing on the core international fund today. Yes. And um, what is it, about 70 or 80 stocks that are in that fund? Yeah, it's about 75 companies. And uh, there's a small weighting of each, and it's international companies, all of them, aren't they? Yeah. Well, a couple of Australian companies. Yeah, a couple of – international meaning, you know, all companies across the globe. Yeah. um, Not just Australian companies or American companies or Mm -hmm. European companies. So it's a sort of a diversified spread across the globe, sort of of the – as we would say, you know, the world's best businesses – and we've seen a rise in companies that are providing investment in automation and other disruptive technology. How do you see this playing out? Uh, that's that's an interesting one. I think you know disruption 
or automation rather, is just another form of disruption and disruption in and of itself, it's a very, it's a sort of a bit of a fashionable term, mm. but this is something that happens over and over and over again in the world, in the economy. It's been happening since cars disrupted horses and then better cars disrupted the old cars. And, you know, one day we won't have autonomous driving and on and on it goes, you know, new industries are formed therefore disrupting the old industries. So, you know, automation is a really interesting one. You definitely have seen it in the vehicle side. You know, autonomous driving is probably first going to go to something like, you know, harvesting crops or doing, you know, long-distance transportation, you know, well before you're driving around the streets of the inner city in an automated vehicle. So, you know, that's, that's one example of disruption. But equally, there's lots of sectors where you know, disruption applies, you know, we're seeing now, you know, the rise of, you know, digital payments, um, the rise of, you know, cloud computing and all of those things, you could call them disruption, but they're just, you know, human ingenuity, you know, coming up with better ways of doing things. And Because it's, it's about making companies. things more efficient, really, isn't it? That's right. And it's, it's about that, isn't it? And the, the ingenuity that drives it. Exactly. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's the way the world works. Mm. Uh, and, you know, even on the consumer side, coming up with, foods that are better for you can be more efficiently harvested and all of those things are a form of innovation as well Mm. and that change in consumer preference does sometimes hurt the incumbent company um, if they don't sort of adapt Um, similarly in digital advertising is is a huge example of where you know people have shifted their behavior they're now consuming a lot of their entertainment their news online so of course that's where the advertisers are going to go. Why would they stick around? You With know, newspapers on, or on newspapers. Yeah. No one's reading those anymore. You know, mm-hmm. no one's going to see your ad. So again, there's nothing sinister there. It's just a change in the way we've lived our lives, and it's generally better. And that's why people change. Um, so are there any particular companies in the portfolio that would highlight this? Ah, um... uh, look, lo- lots of them do. So it's I actually, you know, I, I've actually called it disruption. It's mm. it's actually a key pillar of how I'll go about assessing the quality mm-hmm. um, of a business uh, within the portfolio. So first I will look at economic moat. That's a really popular investing term. But what is the competitive advantage of a company? Importantly, what is the tangible advantage? I think it's really important to identify what it is. Uh, but then disruption is the second component of that. And the intention there is to look at what is this business's resilience to disruptive change that's coming at it. And that's something that's going to play out not over one or two years, but five years and 10 years and and beyond. Sometimes, you know, that trend might be negative for a particular company, but they might be growing into a huge potential opportunity. I can give you an example of, and this is an example of automation that has nothing to do with tech in the true sense, but um, Intuitive Surgical is a robotic surgery company Robotic surgery is only 2% of all surgeries at the moment. Only 2%? Yeah, believe it or not, it's super small. So you've got this huge shift that will take place, you know, over Mm. a long period of time. Obviously, it's not going to be applicable to all surgeries. And this is a very disruptive technology. It's a positive change for surgeons and for the patients alike. And that's a good thing for this company to be exposed to, even if they don't necessarily win all of that market over time. So let's talk about Alibaba that's uh, in the in the portfolio and um, about its move to list in Hong Kong. Yeah, so I think that the Hong Kong listing is an, is an interesting one. Obviously, there's a little bit of writing on the wall 
in terms of their US listing over the Is course of time. Is that because of, of compliance issues? Yes. And, so yeah. there'll be certain disclosure requirements mm-hmm. of any company that is listed in the US. That's not necessarily disclosure they want to partake in. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, it's a national champion, you know, of China. It's, a, you know, still a remarkably, you know, very good business. Just, and, just remind us the business as well. Uh, so, the, look, its primary business is a, you know, Amazon-like, you know, e-commerce marketplace mm. yeah. in China, uh, in which they obviously dominate. Uh, and then they also have a number of other businesses attached to that, which, you know, unsurprisingly, a cloud platform, video content, etc. The list goes on, you know, very much a, a technology company in the, in the true sense of the word. It's, it's a very different landscape in China, but nonetheless, they are the, the dominant player. That is one of, you know, one of several national champions in China. Clearly, there's a very significant risk around, you know, CCP, you know, oversight, regulatory oversight. And that's something that any investor needs to take into account. But one of the things that has been very much encouraged is getting you know Chinese people to invest in these Chinese champions mm. um, and getting letting having them having access to these companies part of their own investment portfolios and so there's been this sort of longer term sort of desire to maybe move the listing of those companies and the trading of those companies back to you know Hong Kong and some time ago they obviously did their initial uh, raising in Hong Kong which was going to be about you know 25% of the total free float and I actually asked our traders to look this up, but now 65% of the float actually sits in Hong Kong mm. already, and the rest is in the US market. And one of the big reasons for those shifts taking place is because the index providers, which as you can imagine are a lot of the a lot of the capital that's floating around, in the last couple of years actually shifted the ticker over to the Hong Kong ticker and away from the, the US ticker. So, you know, by 2024, if they eventually delist from the US, you know, those index providers have already shifted. So, so that the, means ETFs that would yeah, yeah. be using the index from the NASDAQ. Yeah, so would, the MISCI and the FTSE, importantly, yeah. shifted their ticker over to 3388, which is the Hong Kong ticker versus mm-hmm. the Barber US yeah. ticker. So that's already happened. That money's oh, moved. I didn't realise, yeah. Um, and But there is a lot of, you know, based on our traders' analysis, a lot of that speculative money. Mm-hmm. On Barber, as opposed to the index money, seems to sit in the US market still. So it was interesting the other day when, you know, the announcement was made that they would have to, you know, do these disclosures. It was put onto the list of companies that would have to do this. You know, the share price did fall, Mm. but 11%, I think, on the day. But ultimately, nothing's really changed for this company. Nothing's changed in terms of the long-term objective of moving trading over to Hong Kong and ultimately delisting long-term from the US. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so some of the companies that are in the portfolio have the pricing power of desirability. Let's talk about a couple of those companies as examples. Sure. I mean, the pricing power of desirability is a is a great great term. I think I stole it from you. <laughs> oh, is that <laughs> <You> right? <laughs> oh, I wonder who, what clever person said that. Um, so. The, it, it sort of relates a little bit to the inflation conversation we just had. You know, companies that have pricing power are unique. You know, they don't you don't come across them all the time. Hmm. But obviously, they can handle an inflationary environment well. They can handle economic downturn typically better than other companies. For us, a company that has the brand equity such that they can generate pricing power that's the perfect example of an economic moat. That's a, that's a company that, it, where its desirability stands the test of time, and is resilient to you know whatever shocks come its way. And you know we've got lots of companies in our consumer franchises space that fit the bill there. You know, be it you know LVMH, uh, Louis Vuitton, Moe Hennessy. Uh, so you have the luxury brands that fit into that. You have, but equally also have sort of a lot of the alcohol brands, for example. Diageo has Guinness, you know, what a remarkable, you know, resilient brand that's been around for a very long time. Hundreds of years. Yeah. Mm. Uh, And similarly to Louis Vuitton, in fact. Mm. So those companies have pricing power. The pricing power is more a a function of the fact that they have a lot of brand equity and desirability. It's sort of, you know, one begets the other. And it's a that strong brand is a wonderful source of, of competitive advantage that if you can tap into that. It's actually more rare than, than meets the eye, but it's, a, you know, a valuable place to put your money for the long term. And you also talk about the power of scale. Is that to do with um, massive marketing budgets? Well, yes and no. I think just applying scale to, in the context of marketing, is sort of, you know, almost a narrow definition of scale. If you think about the world's best companies, you know, scale is sort of a key part of that competitive advantage. So you're quite right in the consumer side, a company that has scale can really, you know, participate in that that flywheel of being having the most revenues and therefore the most ability to invest in their brand and therefore the most ability to reinforce that brand equity, which gives them the pricing power and it gives them the ongoing desirability and on and on we go. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing, you know, scale on the consumer side. Uh, but equally scale can be giving you the ability to be the lowest cost provider of a good or service to your customers. And so you've got something like a Costco, one of the largest retailers in the world. In particular, you know, about 25% of their sales come from their private label. They have a very narrow number of SKUs compared to a typical supermarket. And they can offer those goods cheaper than anyone else can. And that for them, their scale gives them a competitive advantage in a different way Hmm. and then on the you know on the tech side um that's you know the probably the most obvious example of where scale is a big advantage the uh, network effect the network effect of scale Mm -hmm. is is a really interesting thing you know in payments you've seen that you know if everybody didn't use visa and mastercards and everyone didn't accept visa and mastercards uh, you wouldn't have the the scale that you have today, and obviously the scale begets more scale. But then, you know, on the cloud side, you've got three major players there, which have invested, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars to create that cloud infrastructure. And now you've got, you know, AWS in the lead, Azure, you know, owned by Microsoft in the middle, and then Google Cloud Platform. They have such scale that other competitors can't catch up to them in that space. And it also, you know, the thing that scale gives you is 
the ability again to invest. So in the case of cloud, there's that long-term risk that, you know, does, is cloud becoming a commodity? You know, it's they're just offering this commoditized thing and the three of them will just compete with each other and bring prices down. But their scale enables them to firstly lock their customers in through adding infrastructure and services onto those platforms so that it really locks those customers in. And the value add becomes far more than just offering a commoditized product. Um, You know, for something like, you know, a meta, you know, Facebook, you've got scale has given them the ability, you know, they've got, you know, 30, 40 billion in free cash flow that they can put towards, you know, investing in reels, you know, investing in, you know, Instagram stories, you know, and then monetizing that and the data that they can ultimately harness, you know, admittedly, it's less easy with the the Apple changes that don't let them track you across your whole iPhone. But nonetheless, the data that they can harness, the scale of that data gives them a very distinct, you know, competitive advantage in winning those digital advertising dollars. Google is the same, you know, they've got 90% of search, you know, in the Western world, what is it, 150 billion in revenues that they're they're generating from just that piece of the business alone, that uh, gives them remarkable scale to, you know, be sort of uncontested in that search um, and therefore digital advertising space. So, you know, scale can benefit companies in, in lots of ways. The only thing I would say, you know, as sort of a bit of a counterpoint to the scale argument is companies that are really big and dominant and rest on their laurels won't necessarily be here in 10 to 20 years. And and they often have sclerotic bureaucracies as well. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, IBM is a really good example of that. You know, really dominant business historically didn't innovate. Um, Mm. Microsoft and and Intel came along and ate their lunch. And I think it's really important for them to – these large companies need to be willing to still disrupt themselves and – Maybe that means, you know, you eat your own lunch, but if you leave a gap, then competitors will come in and eat your lunch for you. (laughs) So I think it's, and this goes back to, I think we, you know, we made a comment earlier in this chat around the way the world and capitalism works is that there's always new technology and new innovations coming along. And and disruption, yeah. Disruption. So companies that are not willing to do that or, or don't do that won't necessarily win even if they are the large scale dominant player and you know you look at again the meta example yes there's lots of advantages around their data and around their ability to monetize that data but if they refuse to move into reels if they refuse to move into stories then you are leaving a bit of a gap similarly you know if a food company is unwilling to invest in you know health and wellness options if nestle just sat there going no we're just going to sell people these frozen pizzas and not move on with, you know, plant-based foods or all of the other, you know, health and wellness trends that we're seeing, or if um, then you're really going to end up in a place that doesn't survive and thrive over time. And I I do actually have an interesting stat for you. In a typical index, 40% of companies over time actually fall out of the index because of what they call catastrophic failure. The company, the share price falls more than 70% all the business fails. And that means that... That's even in the top indices, is it? Yes, even yeah. that's the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. And there's also been t- studies done on bigger indices as well. But the data shows in, in those cases, two thirds of all companies within an index actually underperform that index. Yep. The median company actually underperforms. 
And for me, you know, in constructing a, you know, quality portfolio, it really resonates. That fact shows you that winners actually drive index returns. So you want to actually be positioned towards companies that are going to win, be it around disruptive technology change, be it around having a sustainable advantage to survive and thrive versus the the two-thirds of the stocks that are actually the losers and the ones that are going to be thrown over and ultimately drag index performance down Mm. as opposed to people sort of use that as the benchmark but it's interesting to think that the benchmark actually has a lot of companies that you don't want to be invested in (laughs) you know the bad and the ugly of the index We've been concentrating on the core international fund in the core series, but uh, there's a couple of others as well. Tell us about those. Sure. So the just to give you a sense of, you know, each of the products in this series are really designed to harness that research insight that our team generates. You know, we've got 35 people in our investment team. All of them have, you know, real, a depth of expertise, you know, in the sectors and stocks that they look at. And The funds are really about harnessing that intel. We have the international fund, as we've discussed, that's really looking at our research insights on quality, on disruption, on what is the, you know, addressable market of these companies over time, what is their growth and are they trading at reasonable valuations. Then we have the, you know, the ESG flavour of the fund and that uses the same methodology as the international fund and then adds an ESG overlay in particular will score companies as well uh, and will construct the portfolio in the same manner but using that additional score and then we have the infrastructure fund which uses our infrastructure team's proprietary definition of infrastructure and that's really around the level of regulated assets that that sit within these business and the predictability of of those earnings as well as taking a a risk-based approach to, to what what is included in infrastructure and then they construct a portfolio, you know, using that as the as the universe. And the sort of the really the thing that really brings each of those portfolios together is really the importance of that investment universe that we you know choose to include in the pool of, of potential investments. Because again, it's really about picking those winners over time and you know avoiding those losers. And then the approach of the funds is to take you know, a rules-based approach to portfolio construction, focusing on quality companies and giving our investors a diversified and unbiased, you know, exposure to the companies in, in those universes and also being very risk-aware in the construction. So avoiding things that, you know, might blow an investor up, you know, be it a commodity risk or a geopolitical risk or a regulatory risk as well. So we want to just simply, because of that rules-based construction, we want to avoid um, obvious areas where you know you don't want to expose your investors to the structure of these are both funds and etfs as well and um, they've been constructed with the idea 2020 i believe that they were formed these that's right so they were launched available to the retail market Mm -hmm. uh, in december of 2020 the infrastructure fund has been around in the institutional space for a lot longer than that, since 2009. But nonetheless, all products were offered to retail for the first time um, in December of 2020. And yes, they do have that single unit structure, which which means people can invest, you know, through their Comsec accounts or online. But they can also, you know, fill out a traditional application form as well. And it's sort of both both versions of the fund are fungible mm-hmm. uh, with each other. What are the codes that um, they're available? Uh, okay, the codes are for the international fund. MCSG uh, for the ESG fund, MCSE 
and for the infrastructure fund, MCSI. And what are the fees on the funds? Uh, so each of the three funds charges 50 basis points and there is no performance fee added on top of that. Oh, we love that. No performance fee. <laughs> and That's um, right. where can people find out more information about them? You can go online, Google either MFG Core Series or um, access information through the Magellan website itself. There's a link um, to the Core Series on there, and that is magellangroup.com.au. For Harry Ross, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice as we don't know your personal financial situation, so you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.